out there, everyone. Hello, Internet. Hello, friends in the podcast universe. I'm Chase Jarvis. I want to welcome you to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. This is where I sit down with people that I think are awesome, the world's top creators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders, and I unpack their brains with the hope of bringing you some actionable, valuable insights for living your dreams, and I think we do a pretty good job. And my guest today is going to fulfill that mission in part. His name is Robert Bruner. If you look up, quote, badass industrial designer, end quote, in the dictionary, the first thing you're going to see is a picture of this guy. Robert is the co-founder and partner of Ammunition Design Group, one of the top, if not the top, industrial design agencies in the world with clients like Lyft, Adobe, Microsoft, AIGA, so many people. He led the design of the widely popular Beats brand, which, yeah, yeah, you know, Apple bought those guys for a couple bills. And uh, he also built the design practice at Apple. The guy who hired Johnny Ive, yep, Robert Bruner. He's on the show. Johnny is now uh, Apple's chief design officer. <clears throat> but this the stories that we get out of Robert today are incredible. Not just the Apple stuff or the Beats stuff. I actually go down some some other um, really interesting paths around his relationship with the design firm Pentagram with Michael Beirut and others. He's also co-founder of Lunar Design, um, one of the firms that put the design sort of ethos on the map in the Bay Area way back 80s and 90s. So we cover some stuff that's not just the stuff that's down the middle of the road that you've seen on any other interviews with him. In fact, I got a nice note from him after this that said he was, it was a really cool interview. And that's a great compliment. Some things that are amazing about Robert are who he's been around the block. He's like, he's this grizzled veteran like other folks we've had on the show, Debbie Millman, McNally. He's just a pioneer in design as we know it today. He was very critical in providing an actual seat at the table for design. It was, you know, a long time ago, it was, oh, design was a nice to have. And Robert and a couple of his contemporaries made it, no, no, this is actually a requirement. Any great brand or any great experience is going to have design at the core of its thinking. Um, he's built agencies. He's built internal teams. He's brought so many products to market. Um, and as you can guess, he's learned a ton of stuff along the way that we share in this show. If you're a designer or any creative looking to start or sort of advance your career, um, we talk about some career track stuff here, which I found was interesting and different than some of the other interviews we've done here. Or I think this is also really important if you're a business leader who wants to understand the power of design or what design can do for you and your brand and you're sort of dubious, you absolutely have to listen. No flowers, no BS, just truth. Is speaking truth. Um, in today's episode, we also cut through so much of the pretentious posturing around design thinking. We talk about why design is valuable at a very straightforward and practical, pragmatic way. We also talk about the magic ingredients of successful creative careers being soft skills. You have to be able to think about, talk about, share, explain your ideas because if no one's buying your ideas, then they're not getting out there. So in many ways, you have to represent your ideas and sell them or get them in front of people who can buy them. And that's both figuratively and literally. You know, I'm so far from done beating this drum. This is something like the ideas of collaboration and persuasion. This is critical. So many times um, creators think that this is a nice to have. This is a must have. We go into that pretty deep in this episode. 
And lastly, um, some helpful tips on how to build and develop a world-class design team if you're a design leader, a business leader, or what goes into, I would say, building any team. He's got a, a really nice paradigm uh, that helps him think about that. He's done it over and over. And if there anybody knows who's, if there's anybody who knows the blueprint for doing it right, it's clearly Robert. So with that, I want to get into the show. But before we do, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by my friends at FreshBooks. FreshBooks are a cloud-based accounting software, and it's designed specifically for you and me. That's right, for freelancers, solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, and the self-employed. Very stoked to have these guys on board. If you want to get your accounting on Rails, then I encourage you to check out FreshBooks. Sign up for a free trial at freshbooks.com chase. That's one sponsor. Today, we have another one. This show is also brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. All right, uh, so I, I confess, we, we, dear friends in the camera, we talk a lot before we actually start rolling the cameras, mm -hmm. and I'm curious, you started going down a story about how you got started, yeah. and we, we decided to stop talking about it so that you could share it here, but I love the backstory. You know, there's so many of, of the guests on this show who have had insanely successful careers like yourself, mm -hmm. and I think it's hard to believe that you all come from humble beginnings, mm -hmm. so. Can you share that story with us? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, it, 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 I mean, my path in design was actually fairly random, which is how things most, mostly happen. I mean, I was, um, I, it actually starts with family. My, my father was an amazing engineer. He actually invented most of the mechanical technology and hard disk drives at IBM. Wow. Yeah, he was a very creative engineer, just every, you know, constantly working and playing with things. And my mother was a, uh, See, a model, a fine artist, a craftsperson, and an entrepreneur. She started her own children's clothing company, you know. So when you, you kind of marry those things together, what else are you going to do but design? But, <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, in our house, it was like everything was a project. You know, even the Christmas tree every year was different, right? It was just, there was always a project. So, but when I was in high school, um, you know, I, I, I excelled in math and science. So when it came to that, you know, faithful moment with the career counselor, you know, he said, oh, yeah, math and science, you're an engineer, right? Like your dad. And, um, but, you know, the thing that was interesting, I was, I was actually excelled in art, but also what I really did great in was shop class, right? You know, uh -huh, making you stuff, it. right? But I studied engineering for a year and just didn't, you know, just didn't feel good about it. I did all right, but um, and I thought I'd rebel against my dad and I headed over to the art department, thinking I'd you know, study fine art, or I'd heard about graphic design. But anyway, I literally walked in the building, and there was this display case full of industrial design artifacts, you know, renderings and models. And I stood there for I don't know how long, staring at it, and, um, and I just said, this is it, right? This is what I should do. You know, like literally when you walk in the building? <laughs> literally, you know, and I often say this, what if I went in another door, right? I'd probably be a starving sculptor at this point or something, you know? <laughs> But that, that's how I stumbled into design and, and, and never looked back. I mean, it always sort of 
everything fell into place and it was kind of what I was meant to do. And it, it's never actually been a job, it's just always fun. Well, you've said several things in there that I think are intriguing. One, uh, the, that you had a, a mother who you categorized more, I felt you were talking about her more as an artist and mm -hmm. dad as an engineer, but I love that you said a very creative engineer. Yeah. You know, I believe that there's creativity in every person and you clearly, you, you said that uh, either under your breath or I don't know if it was yeah. intentional. Um, was there tension? Did it feel like you had art and science on one? Like, if you'd go no, to, like go to said, mom for one thing and dad like for another. Everything, you know. My my dad, you know, um, if he wasn't working on something for his profession out in the garage, you know, even building a pair of shelves, he built two boats and a canoe, and you know, that was just what I lived in, right? Yeah. And so just making stuff and figuring it out, and and you don't realize it until you look back. You know, to me, I was just a kid, and that's what I did, right? And now Dad's in the garage again. Yeah, and I'm out there helping him or doing whatever, but you absorb that stuff, and, and later on you realize that, you know, I'm, I'm basically a project junkie. It, it doesn't matter whether it's designing a product or cooking a meal, right? It's always a process and, you know, with, with a result, right? Uh -huh. And that's... Uh, but you get that out of your your upbringings. And then when you you uh, another pivotal moment in your story that I was just hearing was you rebelled against your father. So was there a, was there a plan in the family for you prior to you going to school? And, no. and was it destiny that you no, were going to be? No, but he he obviously he loved it that I was studying engineering, and he would help me with my calculus homework and stuff. And um, but you know he didn't like it when I went into design. Uh, in fact, I remember him saying about industrial designers is he said, those are the guys that spec the paint and it usually peels off. That's <laughs> what he had said. Right, so, um, and, and that, you know, he just didn't think very highly of industrial. That was, he was, in that sense, a very old school engineer, right? They, yeah. were, they were the guys who put the racing stripes on at the end was kind of the way he looked at it. Yeah, well, how do you think that's changed to today? I mean, I, I think it, uh, there's this, you know, uh, there's still a tension, not unlike oh, yeah. there may have been at your house or with uh, your parents or with you and your dad, but it's, they, there's a, they coexist. So yeah. how do you think about it today? Well, there is, there is always a tension when it comes to the making of things with the disciplines and everyone has to do. I mean, the, what, what's become much better understood is this notion of being design driven. And, and that's not necessarily that designers are in charge all the way. It's the fact that they're, you're trying to achieve a design, and everybody plays a role in that design. And so, when you're a true design-driven company like Apple or Nike or others, you're you're starting with an end result or an end experience, mm -hmm. and then figuring out all the things that people need to do to deliver that in a really you know amazing way. Um, that's a very different mentality. The old school mentality of my dad was that design is a little piece that happened, right? <laughs> and requirements went in and stuff went out and then they went away right that it's like was like the black box yeah, right <laughs> you know so that that you know that's that's been a big change but i you know i think that probably in the last 10 years i mean actually one of the reasons why i started ammunition was um, I, I felt the rising importance of of industrial design and product design you know moving up in the sort of strategy chain at, at a high level and that's why i wanted to build a company that really focused on that idea and, and it, it was it was a change from thinking about design as just part of the process to thinking design as a strategic asset that yeah. you know to be good at it was very important you know more and more companies and leaders began to realize that and that opened up a lot of opportunities for people with me like me with companies like like mine um, talking about leaders mm -hmm. going back to your past a little bit long stint at Apple yeah Tell me about that. That was at a really fascinating time in the company, yeah. and you know, obviously, 
Steve is the founder, Steve and Waz. Yeah. Like, talk to me about that. I think that's something that people both romanticize and are terrified by starting a company, have it being so successful, but all of the ups and downs that are in a startup, but mm-hmm. you know, having a role in a company so early that it's today the most valuable company in the world. There's all kinds of, of yeah. um, I think, interesting facets to that. Can you give me a perspective? Yeah, yeah, I was, I was at, um, I was actually at a challenging period in Apple, Apple's history, you know, when the company had, had real business challenges and, and um, it actually, at, at the time, you know, design, was important, but it was sort of being questioned at that time. When it should, so it was very interesting. I mean, I went to Apple. I actually had my own company um, uh, with a couple guys called Lunar Design, and and I had that was been, here in San Francisco. Yeah, right? there's, yeah, yeah. They're still 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 around, and um, I started working with Apple um, through a relationship uh, we had with someone who originally hired us. Um, under the umbrella of engineering, simply <laughs> to be- do some racing stripes. <laughs> well, no, simply <laughs> because the they had had a very. They were at the end of a relationship with uh, Frog Design, and they'd had a very um, tight contract with exclusivity, so they couldn't really hire industrial designers. So they hired us as engineers, but they were really sort of probing to see see what we were about. And apparently, we were successful because we started doing more work. And and then um, I got approached to be the director of the industrial design function, and, um, and I originally said no, right? And These are the stories that are juicy. Well, <laughs> I love it. It was interesting, because you know, at the time, the way it worked at Apple was the vast majority of the work happened outside with firms like Frog and myself and others, and there was a relatively small group inside managing them. And, and they were in the process of looking for a replacement for Frog, like some big you know, personality to fill Hartman Esslinger's shoes. And I just didn't want to be a cog in that. That just wasn't what I wanted to do as a, as a professional and a creative person. I, I'm a, I like to make stuff, like I said. So, so I said, no, I, you know, I don't want to do that. And they went away and about th- came back like three months later and said, well, we really like you. What would you want to do? Which was interesting. I didn't plan it this way, but I realized that there's sort of the, sometimes the power of saying no um, was a good lesson. And um, I said, you know, if um, any company could have a world-class design organization, this would be it. So I, I'll do that, build that, and they said, okay. And so... <laughs> and then you're like, oh, damn, yeah. I got what I asked well, for. Well, you know, I remember telling, uh, when I told my um, business partners at Lunar, which was one of the harder things I had to do, I remember saying, you know, I'm, I'm young enough to make a really big mistake and recover, right? So <laughs> now is the time to do something like this, make a big shift. And, um, but it was worth it. Those, those like eight years were um, incredibly valuable from an experience point of view, being inside a company, obviously working with one of the great design companies in the world, um, just um, you know, knowing what it's like to actually make things happen in an organization like that is is super valuable. And then the relationships, you know, you the, the people you work with, and I continue to work with today. Yeah, those never go away. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you talked about it. I was curious. You talked about it just now in a sense of it sort of was one of the great design companies, but. Didn't you help make it a great design company, or did you feel like that was already embedded? And you you mentioned it being in a period of struggle. Yeah. Like uh, where where in the like what inflections were were happening at the time? Well, you know, one of my um, long running jokes I tell is I was between jobs, right? So <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally jobs. Steve Jobs had left. I don't know, not too long before I came. I did my tenure, and then he came back not too long after I left. 
Um, and you know, so so the company had um, design in its culture, right? It was there was an embedded idea that that care would be taken in how things were crafted and presented, right? But but as the company grew, um, there was an influx of people from other cultures, like. Um, Hewlett Packard and Sun Microsystems and companies that weren't didn't really have that in their DNA. And Pepsi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, I worked a bit with John, and he he had it in his his DNA though. But but um, but it was under challenge. And you know, but but the, I think the thing that that you know I was most responsible for doing was sorting building this this starting out this in-house team and culture and studio. You know, because it really didn't exist. There really wasn't even a physical studio. You know, I remember when I first went there, I got really depressed because I ended up in this like eight by twelve, you know, cubicle with beige walls. You know, that were yes. <laughs> five feet tall. The ones that terrified just like, people. What have I done? You know, um, but you know, I, I I quickly learned how to work a system and managed to get my own building and kind Your of own made, building. <laughs> well, not, not just, like a better corner office. Well, no, just I, get a I building where we could have a studio, right? And, <laughs> yeah. And and, and um, you know, I think I've always excelled at under the um, this sort of idea of don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness kind of thing and then managed to make some things happen and get this set up and organizationally get the group positioned in the right place and then begin to attract and hire talent and, you know, sort of, and, and the, you know, I'd built, um, you know, one studio prior to that and then since then now this, this is my fourth studio I've built, so I've kind of learned how to do that. Yeah. And anyway, and that, but that I think, you know, for, from the legacy point of view, um, you know, I would never, you know, take credit for the work that, that those guys have done over the last, you know, it's been 20 years, it's amazing, but, but I think a lot of the guys that I help bring on board are still there and sort of set this idea of, of really ownership of the design agenda and, and, um, and obviously they've taken that to the new levels. So I think that, that's probably my biggest contribution there. Well, um, this is our first time meeting and I've done research on you. You've been an inspirational character. I, I know a little bit about the history of Apple. And I think you're, you're, you're being so modest around setting the culture. I think that's huge. I mean, among other things, uh, brought in Johnny Ive. Yeah, that's my other joke. That, that, that's, that'll be my epitaph, you know, <laughs> on my tombstone, the, the man who hired Johnny Ive. <laughs> but setting the culture, like, to me, that's, a, that's you, um, that is, perhaps a bigger contribution than any individual item. Mm -hmm. It's not like you designed the iPod or the mouse, like to put in motion a culture and then go on at a, a number of other companies like Pentagram and like, like ammunition to you know, grow world-class organizations. That's, that doesn't happen on accident. Mm -hmm. So me to you, uh, mm -hmm. I look at you as, I, I give you a lot of credit for that and I know that the design community does as well. Well, you know, I think it's, um Building a team and an environment to do great work is, is not a simple thing and it's not straightforward and it's not always intuitive yeah. how you do that and how you build a climate where people feel enabled and empowered to do things and, and somewhat protected but still accountable for the work. You know, all these sort of dynamics that go into building a really great creative studio in addition to just talent and tools yeah. and things that... Yeah. Um, and you know, and I think that's a, that's you know very important. I, I work with a lot of companies now who want to build a, a creative um, discipline within their company, and and it's hard for them to understand. It's not just a question of hiring some good people and putting them in a cool space and throwing some projects at them. You know, it's really the makeup and the culture and the ideas and 
you know, again, and, and design is something that does need to be protected in a way. You, you, one of the challenges when I went to a corporation was that you're constantly bombarded by people, you know, wanting stuff or wanting to tell you what they think you should do or participate in their particular process. And, you know, by, so by the end of the day, out of your eight to ten hours, you know, you've managed to spend one actually being creative. So you, you have to build up an environment where but that you, people can, you know, have good time to really focus on things and have the um, ability on a project to experiment and test and fail and do those things that, you know, without it, you'll just, you'll end up doing, you may have really great talent, but just still do mediocre work because you don't have the right environment. Well, that is part of the mission of this show is there are so many business leaders that are looking to get inspired. I talk about creativity being the new literacy and, and if you want to build a great culture, a great design culture, whether it's a massive company like the ones we're talking about or you know, in a startup world like here at Creative Live. Mm. Um, in particular, what advice would you give to a business leader who wants this? I think you just talked about it very generally, but like I think that is a thing that leaders want to know. And, and if you're in an enterprise environment, like what should you look for? What, what are specific things? You know, you said it's not just a space and a bunch of talented people. Um, how do you cultivate the yeah. things? Like, so you're not just working, on, working creatively for an hour. Like, let's get, get tactical for a second. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> there's a simple answer to that. It is, it's complex, but you know, as I said, there, there's, there's, of course there's talent, right? And, and within that talent is, you, you, the leadership is really important. The leadership you, you bring on to drive and build that. Um, there is, you know, of course, environment, right? And you know, the right kind of space to work in. I mean, people, that's something I guess I always, I, always, I, don't, I don't thrive in spaces with low ceilings, right? It's just, <laughs> it has to be an open environment. There has to be a dynamic quality. It has to aesthetically inspire me to do more. Those are very important. Um, then um, culture is sort of building this this idea of, of what's important and what matters. And I think one of the hardest things for people to understand and most difficult things for people to do is a great design studio will always have an editorial viewpoint, right? That is, you know, in our business, we work with a variety of companies and we don't force feed one approach to them that's our own, right? We, we work and understand very, work very hard to understand what people are about, what do they need to do, and the so challenge. forth. Yeah, but we always bring an editorial viewpoint, right? It's like, so there's this, this, this idea of what we believe is good and what we believe is important and what we believe matters, we always bring to that, and that's important, right? Because otherwise, you don't have that sort of way to navigate through difficult, complex decisions. And, um, and so those are some things you absolutely have to have, and, and it's, um, but I said I always like to say if it was easy, everybody would do it. Right? Yeah, so it's true. Um, to that end, I'm going to just one more follow-up question around that. Just thinking if there are business leaders out there, and then we'll maybe flip it and go to the side of the creator. Like, how do you be successful as an individual? Um, but from the other way, um, what role do you think design plays in the building of a product? Because their products are usually introduced as a business mm -hmm. challenge. Like we want to make a music mm -hmm. player. We want to, um, you know, create the best yeah. experience around X, Y, or Z. And there's some people thinking that oh, the world needs one of these. And we said, you know, with Creative Live, like mm -hmm. we have the opportunity to do X, Y, and Z. And then if you go to like designing it, like what role do you feel like it plays yeah. in the content modern contemporary? 
um, business world? Yeah, that, that's why I have a very easy answer to. It's right that that you know, the, the way that uh, I think a, the business leadership needs to look at design is that design is the interface plane between you and the outside world. Right, it is the way that people understand and relate to your company, whether that's through your product, whether it's through your service, whether that's through any aspect you put out in the world. I mean, the, the thing that's interesting is if any company in the world that's making something or delivering something to an audience is designing, right? Yep. They may have no idea that they're designing and no idea what they're <laughs> doing, but they're creating stuff that says things about them, that engages people in, in good or bad ways. and. And, and fulfills their lives in good or earned or doesn't, right? Yeah. So that's what's happening. The important thing is you're very cognizant of it, and, and the way to look at it is, yeah, these, we're creating this interface plane between us, the company, and our constituents. So you better do that right, and better do that well. The second part of that that's incredibly important that I find people to understand is, is how that relates to the idea of a brand, right? And, and to me, I say this a lot, I've been saying for years, I think the idea of brand is really misunderstood. Right, because people tend Break to... Break it down for us. Let's go. Well, it's really, it, people tend to, and, and in my profession as well, tend to look at the idea of a company's brand more around the artifacts that we create. Right, the product, the identity, the package, the retail environment, the, the, the web experience, the application, all those things, right? None of those are your brand. Really what your brand is is a feeling that people have about you when they experience that stuff, right? It's, and they own it, you don't own it, they own it. So the best you can do is influence it, right? And, and influence it in a way that, that's meaningful and authentic. So, you know, when you go out then, obviously design becomes very important, right? As you, the design has to be able to take those things that you do which are valuable and good and, and people want to be involved with and deliver it to them so that you can create these good feelings, right? And I always say, when, when two people have the same gut feeling about you, you have a brand, right? And, and that's the way you have to look at it. So um, when you're thinking about, you know, business leader, when you're thinking about investing in design, you're really in, investing in your relationship with the rest of the world. And, and, if, and, and you should look at the companies that are very good at it and break it down that way and start to see the things that they do to maintain that relationship with people. Because the better relation, the better you are at it, that gap between you and those people shrinks, right? And then you become powerful and charismatic, like Apple, right? So that, anyway, there's your five-minute course on design and brand, right? <laughs> hey, folks! I want to inject another quick word from our sponsor, FreshBooks. Want to give a shout out to those guys. Reminder: FreshBooks is a cloud-based accounting software created specifically for creators, freelancers, and the self-employed folks like you and me. They just launched an all-new version designed from the ground up that is fantastic. A quick quick backstory, I once did for a whole year a paper ledger accounting and then did my own taxes, handwritten, without the help of an accountant or any software. It was horrible. I would never wish it on my worst enemy. And I just think about how much time and energy FreshBooks would have saved me in that year of my life. Uh, so simple to use. Couple of my favorite features. One is you can create an invoice in less than 30 seconds. Super, super easy. Another one is that <laughs> this is related. You can see when your clients have actually viewed your invoice. So that removes that idea of hey, I never saw your invoice. And then the last one, which is a, a big thing nowadays, is you can literally with two clicks accept online payments like credit cards, get those funds direct into your bank account so you can get paid faster. 
And importantly, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted trial for free to anyone who listens to this show. In order to claim it, go to freshbooks.com chase. And where it says, how did you hear about us? Enter the Chase Jarvis show in that little slot there, and you will have access to that free trial. Let's flip now, flip the script. I would love some more water if we can get that. I'm, I'm chugging my water. But uh, if let's flip the script now and go back to the designer, mm-hmm. the individual. Because there's so many people, you know, I mentioned off screen, we've got sort of two audiences, the people who identify as creative mm-hmm. and, and want to take their career to 11, and the people who are as, that basically don't identify as creative and they, they're curious, they know that, that the future of... Um, the world is, has so much creativity in it, mm-hmm. and you know, even if you're five years ago, everyone needed to learn to code, and now mm-hmm. people are saying, "Wait a minute! Actually, mm-hmm. AI is going to be able to write code about itself mm-hmm. here in the next five years." So, you know, creativity might be the only thing that saves us. Yeah. So, how do you think of both? Let's talk about two separate questions here. Or your answer would be to two separate questions. One is, if you're a freelancer, how should you look at the world? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is if you want to have the, you know, be a part of a bigger team mm-hmm. and go to a company, um, how, you know, how do you look at things like culture and the design community and the products that you're making? Should you go to a place that has crappy products and try mm-hmm. and make a huge impact? Or do you go to a place that, you know, just let's look at it from both sides, right. but from the, from the creative's perspective rather than the business side. Okay. Well, you know, first I'll... I'll, I'll Give you a bridge from the last question, right? You know, and then another way to look at design, you know, because I, 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 and a lot of people in this area, right, live in the world of technology, and and there's con- we're in San Francisco, San Francisco, Francisco yes, so in, the, in the in the in the in the Bay Area, um, and I always say this that the technology, the under underpinnings that make things work, is extremely important, but it it's only an enabler, right? It's the technology enables, but design is what establishes, right? Design is what and that's, again, what sort of made things about what I do very powerful is people started to get that. It doesn't matter how amazing the underpinnings are. If people don't, can't have access to it, don't want to have access to it, don't have a desire to be part of it, it won't, doesn't matter, right? So as you as an individual is sort of looking at how do you, how do you play in that game, right, of, of working to create and build things that, that bring that, you know, bring it out into the world. Mm-hmm. And, and what do you do to, to, to contribute to that in a way that, that's meaningful? You know, and, and it is challenging. So again, back to here in the Bay Area, it's being a designer is a great place to be, but it's extremely competitive. There's a lot of talent coming from all over the world, you know, wanting, yeah. wanting, to, wanting to be part of what, what happens here. And so you know, what, what becomes very important, people always ask me, well, what do I need to do to get a job? What do I need to put in my portfolio? I mean, you, you, have, you have to be real and be yourself, but I think the most important thing is is showing how, through your talents and viewpoint, you can shape something in a way that 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 appeals to the human, right? That that, that, that captures the human. We get very caught up in, you know, the, the 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 way the software works, or the way the hardware works, or this amazing display, or this that and the other thing, right? Which, but that that those are again only underpinnings. What really matters is what are people doing with it? How are they doing it? How does it engage them? How does it make them feel? You know why does it matter, right? That's, that's something. We we have a um, a small strategy group at my office. Um, within but, ammunition. Yeah, within ammunition, and you know, strategy is kind of an overblown phrase, but really they have one function, and that is, um, you know, determining what should be designed in the first place. 
That really, that's their whole charter, is that when we go into something is trying to figure out what's worth designing in the first place. And, and, and so bringing that idea of looking at all the things of how, how you deliver something great into people's lives. And, you know, and, and whether you're, you know, um, uh, you know a, a beginning designer, a model maker, it's sort of how do you play a role in that? Because um, that's, that's the power of your profession. And so being part of that is extremely important. And as you're part of a team inside a company, do you, when you're trying to make statements, is, it, is that really the thing? Is you're trying to make statements? Are you trying to be a part of a team? Is it, you know, I think the difference between the independent mindset and the team mindset is like if you play a good role in a product and the product fails, it's still a failure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so there's a little bit of a different, yeah. no, I guess maybe that's my question. Is there a little bit of a different mentality um, when you're, you know, at a company or, or for the folks who want to take their career to the next level inside of a, an ammunition or, you know, or, or a pentagram or some other well-known firm? Well, I guess the, if you're talking about participating in something that succeeded or failed, you know, I guess it, a lot of that does depend on the company culture. One of the things I used to love about the time I was at Apple was that you were allowed to fail, right? At least once, right? <laughs> More than once, maybe not, but at least once. But as long as you were trying to do something good and amazing, right? And, and that, that was always really supportive. I think that's an important part of, of a creative culture, that you, you don't feel like... If I go out on a limb and it blows up in my face, I'm dead, right? Then you're not going to go out on that limb. Yeah. Um, so, um, but, but back to sort of how you participate in teams, it kind of, it kind of depends on that culture, too. It, it's, yeah, I have a different, I, I think um, even though we are a multidisciplinary company, um, I think the idea of sort of broad collaboration is highly overrated or misunderstood, right? Ooh, this is juicy. Well, okay. you know, there's sort of this notion that a group of, say, eight people are going to collectively design something great is actually kind of rare, right? Because it, it's really what's important. What kind of collaboration? I mean, we, we do two types of collaboration because we have um, the way we look at delivering something, a product, right? There, there's a lot of things that go into that. It's not just the object. It's how people learn about the object, what happens when they buy it, what's the unboxing like, what happens when I turn it on, what's the interface like, what's it look like, what's it feel, all those things, right? So different people participate in that, and they all have roles, but what I always like to, is that there's always someone that's owning part of it, right? And they have the support of their team. It's not some vague sort of ownership. There's somebody, some person who's putting themselves on the line with, the, with an idea they have and pushing that through. And because I, I, I just, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the human condition and the need to make an impact and ownership of stuff. I think that's, when you see the guy at the, at, that's at our studio there at 3 a.m., it's because he's got something in his head that he thinks is going to be amazing and he's going to put the time in to do that and make it happen. With clear ownership. Yeah, with, it's, you know, and, and they've got the, my support and the support of our team to go do that, right, and we're going to help you. And, help you, you know, figure out what's wrong and write about it and deliver it. That, that's the kind of collaboration, I think, that leads to really great work. What about uh, on the freelance side? There's so many folks out there, you know, one of the reasons that Creative Live is, is, exists is to help people yeah. live that dream. And now, I, you know, I, I heard some data. You know, again, I, I am a self-identified creative. It's the only job I've ever had. You know, creating Creative Live was very opportunistic, and it's been you know one of the most amazing journeys of my life. But I've learned to, 
like value data. And one of the pieces of data that I think is impressive is there's going to be 53 million Americans who are going to have a side hustle by 2020. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those are in these creative fields. Mm -hmm. um, because there's the history of the portfolio rather than school, there's the history of, um, or the new history, I guess recent history, of the role that design and creativity is playing to unlock all kinds of challenges. So what, what do you see for the freelancer? And, and you know, how do you guys use them as yeah. ammunition? And, and conceptually, how should folks be thinking about their careers? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I, I, I can only answer it from how we view it, as you said, you know, because, I mean, it's, I mean, we really don't hire freelance people um, to come in and, and work as part of the team on a project. It just, it, it's really difficult to do, to bring someone in and expect them to be up to speed and, and understand how we work and what we do and be effective. Be part of the culture immediately. And, yeah. yeah. What we do hire outside people a lot is First, they're, they, they're known to do something very well, right? And whether that's a model maker, a photographer, an, an illustrator, um, a CAD sculptor, we just know this guy's amazing and we're gonna use him because we'll get an amazing result out of it. So I, I think that's the way I tend to look at being successful in the freelance world is, is almost this, this really uber specialization of just doing some part of the process so well Right, yeah, that, creative that you're just, you're, you're, yeah, and you're just in demand, right? And yeah. so photographers, I mean, that's why you know, people are, are recognized for their work, and, that's why, and it's kind of similar with different aspects of what we do, and there's just, we have a group of, I don't know, maybe a dozen or so individuals that we know we can, if we can get their time, they can come in and really contribute for a very short period or about a really specific deliverable, something amazing. Yeah. And, and I think that those, those, those guys are always busy. Yeah. I'm, I'm a huge advocate of that, of, about um, what can you be world-class at, such that if someone has a problem that you pop into their mind in, you know, in whatever scale, if it's you're, you know, the middle of Ohio, you're the best person in Cincinnati at this particular thing, uh, or And, and or it can be very narrow. I mean, like, there are guys who work with that just, or that, that do 3D, um, Development that are particularly good at a certain type of surface, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and, yeah, you know, and you're just like, yeah, I want to get that guy in because he can build this better than I ever could, right? And that's that, but that that's again, the, the, that person is in high demand because they can do something nobody else can. Yeah, but there's something also interesting about if you are in pursuit of that as an independent, and you if you can achieve it, one of the things that I've prescribed, and I'd like to get your take on this, is. The concept of mastery. If you've mastered something mm -hmm. and you develop a reputation for being a master of that thing, and whether you get hired by ammunition or you know in, in the freelance capacity that we're talking about, that it actually helps you be better at learning other things. And some of the the best people that I know are are multi talented. It's because they cracked one nut, they lived it, they felt like what that felt like to master something, yeah. and they say, "Huh, how did I do that? Oh, I, I you know I." worked under the right people, or I put myself out there, I took risks here, here, and here. Mm -hmm. I think there's a little bit of a pattern to success. Give me your take on that. No, I, I think it's absolutely true. I think what, as you grow in your career and your discipline and you get, you get good at something, you realize there's two parts to it. There's the actual thing you're doing, but then there's the way you went about it, right? Almost to a fault, I find this, I drive my wife crazy because I have a way of doing things and, and I start to apply it to everything, right? And, in life, like setting the table at <laughs> yeah, night. Exactly, and... <laughs> right, there's an order we need to go through here, right? And just, shut up. Um, but no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think you, you begin to, 
um, you know, as you gain experience, realize that, hey, I'm just, in addition to I'm good at this thing, you know, whether it's illustration, I'm actually good at thinking through how to actually solve this particular problem that I can apply that on other problems and then you start to do that, right? And I think that's how you see a lot of people pivot in their careers is they've been doing something and then it's actually, my, my wife's a great story that she's a um, fashion designer, I started her own eco-label eco called Piece by Piece where she um, would collect discarded fabric samples and put them together and make them into things. And, and, wow. and she, but she found it really challenging to make and sell them because they're very hard to make. And then they had very expensive garments made out of scraps. And, but through that process, she started um, um, experimenting with natural dyes. I mean, literally like rust and whatever, avocado shells or whatever else she could dig up. Wow. And she became so good at that, she's completely moved her career in that path. So now she's a textile artist, right? Because she, through this, process, learn on something else and moved, got good at that. And, you know, and I think that's the way a lot of people change their career direction yeah. is, is sort of figuring out, hey, I'm, I'm good at something and I'm going to build on that into something else. But it's like pulling on a string, right? You're, yeah. It's like, you're not trying her, to her pull. Her label's piece by piece, by the way. It's an unbiased plug, so I'm not going <laughs> to. Take it. Is it P-E-A-C-E? -E? No, P-I-E-C-E-X, okay. <laughs> P-I-E-C-E. Got it. Um, because you said it was eco, it could be peace, you know, yeah. I mean, where we are in San Francisco yeah, or... Um, no, that's, I'll check it out. That sounds fascinating. And I think that her story is also um, can be inspirational because people, they're like, oh my God, I'm getting started or I'm, what do I do? Well, you do the thing that you love, that you're called to do, and you do that very deeply. And is it a miss if you then get pulled onto something else? No, that's actually the point. It's like experimenting or trying or familiarizing yourself. It's, it's I think it's the the way that life happens, yeah. uh, especially yeah. following uh, creative pursuits. I started out as an oil painter. Mm -hmm. They were too slow mm -hmm. <laughs> to the point of boring, like you'd yeah. have to paint them and then walk away yeah, for yeah. a couple of days. Yeah. And then I moved to acrylic because it was faster, and then I moved to photography because it was instant. Yeah, yeah. And all, all in the same studio over the course of about four or five years, mm -hmm. I, I made that transition. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, and I don't look at my career as a miss. Or I don't think of myself as an oil painter who mm, missed. Mm. I think of myself as a photographer now turned entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah. So that's great. Um, so we've been a little bit conceptual, and I want to go a little bit more to a timeline because mm. we talked a little bit about Apple. Um, then you had uh, some time at Pentagram mm -hmm. where you were a partner. Yeah. And um, Michael, he's been on the platform. Michael yeah. Beirut yeah. and. and um, I just talk. I just did a um, talk at his class in Yale and a podcast with him last week. So. Nice. Yeah. I mean, the, on the podcast circuit now. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about that time and, you know, how, was it influential to your career? Do you feel like, you know, what are some of the projects that stood out there? And um, yeah, it was a, it was an amazing time. You know, it was ten years, and you know, I, um, I was. You know, it was interesting. My viewpoint on Pentagram was probably different than most people. Most people from view the, the 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 great graphic design icons as the of the of the partnership books and posters and yeah, yeah but but I when I was in school I stumbled on a book of Kenneth Grange's work. Um, Kenneth Grange was one of the original five as a industrial designer, um, which I was incredibly inspired by, especially his work he'd done for uh, Kenwood appliances and um, and Kodak and so. 
that was kind of my framework when I was originally approached, you know, to potentially join the partnership. Was it, you know, was that foundation at Kenneth Grange, uh, and and it was an amazing time. I mean, it was, you know, the, I don't know how much people know about Pentagram, but the structure of the company is really interesting in that I always say it's more like a law firm than a de design firm, and that you have <clears throat> multiple partners, each with their own area of expertise, with their own clients, their own people, and it's almost like you have a bunch of businesses within a business and under this, this, this umbrella of structure and brand. And, and, and it's great, you know, and, and amazing people. You know, they're working with Michael, who's uh, still a great friend, Paula Cher, who's just amazing designer and amazing friend, and uh, you know, a variety of other people are just, you know, the, that experience of working closely with, with those guys and seeing how they work, and, it, and, and then the type of clients that the company attracts. You know, so I was working on my my own things for a lot of technology companies, but also working with United Airlines and um, they could use UPS. More work and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> they fell away from the work that we did, <clears throat> but um, you know, and so getting that 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 broad experience working on these you know huge multinational, worldwide projects were, was was really incredible. How about New York versus San Francisco? Well, obviously, at the, at the time, I think, really, I mean, with, with, with all due respect to my pals in London, New York was kind of the center of the company, really, with, with you know, with what Michael and Paula and, and, uh, and Michael Garricky and others were doing in that office. And so, it, uh, San Francisco... I love that space. Oh, yeah. It's such a cool they just, space. They're just moving out of it just now. Oh, week. dagger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was an old, old bank. Um, yeah, they had to were stuffing people downstairs in the vault, and I think that's when they decided it was probably or needed more space. <laughs> Time to grow. Um, no, it, but the, it was kind of interesting. But San Francisco was always a little bit of an outpost, you know. In fact, it was always about London and New York largely. Then there was San Francisco, Austin, and Berlin, which were always a little bit of an outpost. And I mean, actually, one of the things that led me to leaving the company was that I was um, because I was the only person in the company doing what I do. The 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 collaboration wasn't happening in the way that I wanted to, and then I was seeing what was going on in product design, and started to realize it may not have been the, may not be the best platform going forward. And uh, so I um, I resigned, which was shocked to everyone because I think only one other partner had ever resigned. That's the that's the the Everest of design. Yeah, you you either you're either kicked out or you die. You know that's yeah. that's really it. it's it's yes, true. Probably you know one of the certainly one of the if not the top one of the top yeah. firms no, ever so, to be uh, in business. But you know we were all good friends, and since I, what I was doing was unique, it was you know I couldn't really pass on my clients or my people or anything, and so it was, it was really amicable and, and people understood what I wanted to do. Clearly, if you've just come from spending time with Michael, it went okay. Yeah, no, <laughs> and, and yeah, and, uh, but it was, like I said, just, just actually the, the best, ex other than the partner meetings, which were always amazing, every six months we had a meeting some amazing part of the world, which was great, because you know, it's almost like you're, you have this, um, you know, when you're busy, you don't always take vacations, right? So then every six months, you're forced to go to, like, southern Italy and <laughs> spend a week. Yeah. Um, that was great. But, but really, it was, the, it was the, the individuals and the amazing talent and personality and drive that they had. It was just really inspirational for me. Well, clearly, it paid a, a role in, in ammunition because you went out on your own. Mm -hmm. And talk to me about forming, forming that. Yeah, that was... Um, 
you know, as, as I said, I was at Pentagram and, and, and doing fine, but just like feeling like something wasn't quite right. And then I could see what was happening in industrial design and kind of felt like I'm over on top of this other mountain, like waving my hand saying, come, hey, look, I'm over here. And, and, I, and I, this idea began to form that was actually interesting, not that different than Pentagram, but with a significant difference. And, and that was, I felt like I should be, I really believe in the idea of multiple design disciplines working together, but with the product as a focus, right? And sort of really, it's like everything you need to do to make a really great product and experience. And that involves, um, you know, of course, industrial design, but also visual design and design strategy and UI and user experience and packaging. And those are all the things, you know, it's not a laundry list. It's just what you need to do. And so um, that was one of the impetuses. Um, the other was that I had this um, epiphany when I was at Pentagram that I think as designers, we give away intellectual property really cheaply, right? If you think of design, you know, things you create, it's no different than um, code or schematics, right? You're creating intellectual property. And, but as designers, we're kind of happy to, if, we got, if it's a good project and we get paid reasonably, we're kind of happy to just like, okay, here you go. See it out in the world. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. you see it out in the world, you know, doing amazing things. So I wanted to exp experiment with different business models to, to participate more in that. Um, and, but interesting, I was still, um, I, I, so I got um, married um, and I was trying to decide what to do and I was on my honeymoon with my wife in Nicaragua and um, we're sitting on the beach and I was complaining about it and whining and she just kind of turned to me and said, why don't you just go start it and do it and stop, you know, just stop whining and go do that, right? <laughs> and so <laughs> I came back and like a week later, you know, tendered my resignation. But, but that was really the, the idea around ammunition was that we um, sort of build this team that's sort of with the product at center and, and start to experiment with participating with companies in different ways. So today, you know, we, we have about, um, you know, we, we still, we do a lot of work with sort of traditional, which is, you know, con contract fee-for-service kind of stuff. But then we do a lot of work that is for equity and revenue sharing. And um, we have about, I don't know, somewhere around 40 companies in our portfolio that we wow. have ownership in or we're, you know, sharing revenue with. And, um, and it's just, it, it took a while to figure it out and how to do that and how to do it, you know, within the company under different, different business models. But the interesting thing we found, um, you know, beyond the, you know, obvious economic potential, it actually made us better designers, right? The way that when we were engaged with a company or a startup or an individual on a sort of partnership level, um, a couple of things happen. One, you're obviously more vested because you want, you want the thing to be successful. Um, but also you're respected more, right? When, when you're there sitting around the table and you've got skin in the game with everybody else, well, they listen to you more, right? You're no longer the hired gun, you're, you're a partner. And, and so it, it's actually, um, like I said, I think we kind of carry that mindset to everything we do, whether we're just on a, a traditional contract or not. And, it, and we tend to practice a lot of tough love with the people we work with and really you know, advising them not just on the things we're creating, but how they're structuring their business and and going out in the world, and it's I actually love it. It's really enjoyable. Yeah, you, you've certainly gotten credit for that. I think you had a couple early products. Also, Eve Bahar has been on the show um, with Fuse, and they've done some ownership mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Is that a model for the future? 
or is it a now thing? Or like? I, I think it's I think it's a model for the future. I don't know. I mean, it, it's it, it's not for the faint at heart, and it is complex, <laughs> and it is, and you have to be. There's a lot of things that will never reach the potential you'd hoped, and mm -hmm. and so you have to almost view it as a portfolio in a way. But um, but I, I think the idea of there's two ideas: designers, entrepreneur. Um, I think is is something that's been around for a while, but I think just probably in the last decade that designers are, I don't know whether we're getting smarter or just getting more exposure or better relationships, but we're f figuring out how to be successful at that. Um, and the other is just this, this idea that um, we're not, designers is, is again not some lower level part of the process design is not design is actually an important part of making a business successful um, and especially if you're an early stage company and, and, and building something that's going to go out in the world so you know you you end up at that that level where you actually can be really impactful and I think people know that and understand that and obviously Eve has been very successful in that as well and it's it's again this sort of idea that I'm 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 here to work with you. I'm going to work with the CEO and everyone else to figure out what you need to do to be successful. And, and having that respect returned is, is, I think, the way, the future of design. Great. So I think that that's very impactful. Just conceptually think about the role mm -hmm. that design played. It went from, especially in the U.S., it was like so secondary a long time ago. It mm -hmm. had, has had more traction in Europe, mm -hmm. um, just culturally, and then here most recently mm -hmm. have seen it. Uh, technology as a lever for getting amazing design mm. out there in the world. Like mm. you said, it's a facilitator. Mm. Um, I'm all, I'm, I, I believe deeply in it as a core pillar of the future. How, um, talk to us about design thinking. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, there have some firms have sort of tried to put their hooks in and is owning that, but design thinking is a process and you know back to whether you're a business leader or you're trying to solve a problem with a small team give me you know you gave me your five minute lesson earlier on on brand give me your five minute lesson on design thinking oh boy I don't know what you stepped into I don't No, I think there's a lot of bullshit in that phrase to be honest Great. um no I, I you know like the idea of design thinking and design process is not a new idea I had this realization when I first went to Apple they I had to take a total quality management class. They make everybody do this, right? They called it Apple Quality Management. It was the same deal. Um, and I sat there through this two-day course and realized it was the basic design process I was taught, like in the first year of design school. You know, of you know, identify the problem, prototype solutions, test prototypes, revise solution. You know, and applying it to not just creation of physical things, whether that's a manufacturing process or you know, and, and I realize it's just the way you, it's problem solving, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, I, I think it's 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 absolutely enormously valuable, and and it's actually a great way for businesses to work and think. But I think there's been a lot of sort of you know people have tried to wrap it up as some sort of mystique around being something that's totally new and innovative, and it's just it's, it's just like just go take freshman level design <laughs> at any university, right? Yeah, and 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 think about applying that to different things, right? And and it's it's interesting. Maybe that's it, where the magic is. It's yeah, applying it's, it to thinking about an organization structure or not just a product or a design. Yeah, I mean, we we have this thing 
it's not, we're not the only ones that do this, that we call service design, right? And it's really when we're working with a company, it's, you know, and starting to look at, you know, what they're doing, it's not just, again, the artifact, it's just this whole, way, how is this service delivered to people, right? And so you start getting into not just designing things, but designing behaviors and designing communication and, you know, because you're just looking at how do you, you orchestrate this thing to, mm -hmm. be, to deliver something really great, right? And so I, I think, so I, I, I remember, I, I won't name names, I get in trouble, but I was, was, years ago I was at a cocktail party with one of the uh, leaders of the so-called design thinking movement, and he said um, something to the effect of, design thinking is too important to be left to designers, right? Meaning, you know, this was MBA territory, right? This was not, you know, and I just, I remember I had to like go, Take a big drink of my white wine and yeah. chug some white wine and go in the corner and have some more cornichon or something. <laughs> exactly, but um, but yeah, I, I think again, and I'm not saying it's not valid. It's just it, it gets kind of overblown, right? I think, but that's it. You know, I think it's also how I view design and how we view our company. We're very um, we're very much about delivering things as soon as we can. I'm a big believer in getting ideas out into the world as soon as possible. And, you know, and so the idea of, of years and years of research and white papers and so forth, sort of designing something doesn't fit our model. It's very much identify, develop, make it, see what happens. That's sort of more in the guerrilla warfare area of design. How do you, do t how do you um, foster the growth of your employees and the designers that work for you, the creatives that you talk about being multi multidisciplinary? Do you have a, um, a pattern or way of thinking about it? Yeah, it's it's actually very challenging for us because we're a relatively small company. We're just under sixty people, right? And we kind of like that size, so it's not a big big growth plan. Um, and sort of how do you provide growth for everybody in that um, is is challenging. Um, well, one thing that's we 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 actually realized you know, maybe five years ago, maybe a little longer, that we're actually very good at identifying and developing talent. And because it came out of necessity, what 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 began to happen was the um, salary curve in the Bay Area designers kind of started going through the roof and driven by Apple and Amazon and Samsung and Google and those are the companies we're almost you know effectively competing with the talent yeah and I remember we were um, interviewing a um, for a trying to find a senior person and I was interviewing these guys with eight or ten years experience and they um, and realizing they weren't as good as some of our people that had two or three years experience, right? And they were asking these enormous salaries and, and we began to realize, so what we've always done is we have an internship program, but it, it's a postgraduate internship and people work three, six, nine, 12 months and we use it as an extended interview process and then we identify the ones we think are really good and then invest in them for a year in developing them. And it turns out we're really good at that because we have the majority of our team started out of school um, and um, have, have stayed for a while and grown, grown with the company and just understand what we do and how we do it and, and are very, very good. And, and so that's, we really develop people and bring them along and move them from, you know, uh, you know just working initially as an intern and then participating in programs, then owning a program, then managing other people, then having client relationships, and then you know, just constantly bring people along and their experience and, and, and give them more and more difficult things to do. And uh, we have a great team, and, and we really, I really actually enjoy that part of it, seeing people grow and develop. Well, let's get tactical for a second. That was inspiring, and I think um, 
I love the idea of talent development and you realize as a leader that you don't scale and so it's all about the people that you, you know, you bring into the company or the project or the vision. Um, let's go to tactical mm -hmm. about you. Yeah. Like any, any um, I hate the word, you know, tips or hacks because they mm -hmm. both sort of undersell the concept, but what are some habits is probably the best word. You have some habits. I mean, you, you joked earlier about you have a way of seeing the world, and you apply that to whether it's cooking a meal or, or, or designing a product. Or you know, is that a, a habit that you have, and is it a, a good habit? <laughs> or well, there's some habits. I mean, I the part of you know, the cooking store. I mean, I like doing something till I get it right, right, and and figuring out how to make something just right. Um, I just went through a three-year process of building a house, and I've. I think actually a product designer is probably a contractor's worst nightmare. I'm in the middle. I just just finished. Actually, it's been brutal. Well, I, you know, because I'm down in millimeters, right? Just yeah. making sure something is just right, and they're like, "That's not possible." Yes, it is. You're going to do it that way. Um, but I think it is this um, the habit that I think is very one of the habits that's very valuable to me is that sort of quest to get something just right, right? And and sometimes you, you have to compromise or give up and. But you always have that, right? And I think that that's one. The other one that I have, which sometimes drives my team crazy, is I like to look at, explore pretty broadly before we focus in on something. And, and I don't know what it is. I, it may be some sort of insecurity on my part that I've tested everything to know that that idea I thought was right in the first place is actually right, right? But, you yeah. know, to go, you know, so I'll always make the guys do, let's develop some more concepts, let's play with this one some more. And so, but, but I think it, for me, it is important because then when it gets to the point where we're telling someone this is what you should do I feel like I've sufficiently explored I've looked at everything else and you know and and I think this is absolutely the right thing to do and ironically a lot of times it does go back to that second or third idea yeah. the first idea you had but but it's also that it allows you to have confidence in the idea that you're putting forward it's because you've actually looked around you looked under some stuff and you didn't find better ideas I yeah. think that's actually a common pattern having you know, lived a, a life as a professional creator my whole life and then, you know, sat here and had so many friends that were at top performers. I think, like, figuring out that what you have is actually a good thing and by doing a lot of research and yeah. whether you call it research or, you know, something else, ultimately you're, you're, you're making sure that you, you're, val you're validating yeah. or further validating that you're sinking your energy into the right yeah. thing. Yeah. There's a couple of things I think I, 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 I regularly will tell um, students, people that... Um, I think are important. One, one is that I think really gets overlooked in design school, and that is your ability to communicate about your work. You know, sometimes the, the difference is, in, you know, and, and it may fall over into selling, but really it is sort of being able to clearly articulate an idea in an inspiring way to someone, you know. And I mean, how many times I'll work with some of our younger people and I say, okay, now's your chance, you get to talk about your work, and they'll just start talking about the details and this, you know, and stuff that's important to them, but it's, no, you need to start off with what's the big idea, what's the purpose, you know, how is this doing it, how, you know, really, and, and that, that is something that comes with experience, but it, I think it gets overlooked quite a bit, that ability to, to communicate about things, both yeah. verbal and written. Yeah, that's one of the things that, that at Creative Live we were being asked to do a lot. There's design schools that we're talking to and they're saying, oh my gosh, our people can't make a living, they can't communicate about their work. My background is in philosophy. Mm -hmm. you know, so it's like thinking big about how to connect unlikely ideas and then talk about it. Mm -hmm. And 
I find the emotional intelligence, the ability to present, the ability to believe in an idea, even things like body language and and positioning, like in a business world, because mm. what you're really doing is solving a problem. Mm. So without being able to put your solution in the context of the problem, you've you know you've really taken a lot of power yeah. out of the solution. Yeah. Um, you, you feel like that's a major miss from design school and. Yeah, I think so, and, and, and I think I always say it's, you need to learn how to tell a story. People love stories, right? People love you know a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you know and telling and getting there and taking people along this journey, right? Yeah. Um, and and it's it's a, it's an important part of you know again, if you're if you get to a certain level, right? You're you're not doing something alone, right? I'm I'm not just doing everything. There's yeah, a little garage anymore. Yeah. So you know you have to be able to get people to follow what you want to do. And those sometimes are the people that work for you, sometimes they're the people that you're working with to make something. So you have to be able to figure out how to get them behind, especially if you're gonna do something hard. Yeah. Right? If you're gonna do something hard that requires some people to put in extra time or do things they haven't done before or take some risks, you're gonna to have to get them inspired about it and figuring out how to do that. How do you do that? How do you get people to do that? You're younger people. They've clearly, you gave a scenario where they might have stumbled and just got into the weeds real quickly. So how do you coach them? Yeah, um, a lot is, you know, when you, you give them the opportunity, you give them a little bit of rope. <laughs> Not enough to hang themselves, but a little bit of rope. Rope and, burn. <laughs> and then, you know, afterwards you sit down and said, okay, here's what you did good. Think about this next time because, you know, you went right down into the weeds and lost everybody after two minutes. Okay, so, so you know, so it's stuff like that, just really sort of coaching and getting people to understand. But again, it has to come through experience. It just doesn't. I, I um, when I first started, I was deathly afraid of speaking in front of crowds or doing anything like this. You know, I just had to really force myself to get good at it because it just. I realized, oh, this is. If it's I a wanna, part of the profession. Yeah, if I want to do this, this is going to be part of my job. So yeah. I better figure out how to be better at it. So. Uh, Personal habits continued. Like, do you have any routines that you do in the morning, noon, or night? Do you have some like us any superstitions about how to design, where to start? You start at the end and then work backwards, or you, you wake up at two a.m. and do yoga. Like, get real tactical. I, yeah, weird I don't know. Me. Weird thing. What's yeah? Well, what's weird about you, Robert? Let's what's go. weird about me? Um, I don't know. I'm, a, I'm actually probably a boring, normal person. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I, I don't know, I just get, um, and it's probably good to ask my wife that question, but I get obsessed with stuff, right? And it, it, and again, to my detriment, right? My my kids will be screaming and crying or whatever, and I'm just like, no, fuck, I gotta get this, I gotta figure out how to make this router work, right? I'm gonna forget about anything else. I'm <laughs> gonna focus Sally's on this. diapers. <laughs> I'm gonna, you know, and like, but yeah, I just, I get obsessed with things. Um, the other thing, I don't, um, I really wish I had the discipline to like do a sketchbook and stuff like that. You know, people always have these great books and they show you all these things. Right? I have this habit of just whatever scrap of paper and writing implement is available, I grab. I mean, I've literally done sketches with crayons that happen to be laying around the kitchen because I just <laughs> had this idea and I could, I've got to put it down on a piece of paper and figure it out. So I think it's another quirk because it's just like a very, um, you know, at the moment, like, okay, I got this thing. I got to write it, write it down right now. Then I lose the scrap of paper. You know? <laughs> so your sketchbook is a box, right? How about um, personal professional balance? Can you, you know, any insight there? Oh uh, yeah, that's that's a tough one. So um, 
Yeah, truth be told. It's not a trick question. I know. <laughs> I, 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 you know, in, in the world of uh, design professionals, I'm probably an anomaly. I have, I have a large family. I have six kids. Um, broad range from 30 to four-year-old twins, right? Um, so I, I have no choice but then to figure out, and, there, and my family's incredibly important to me. It's actually I draw most of my energy and inspiration from them. So um, you, I guess to me, the, 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 the job will always draw you, right? There's no, people will always be putting pressure on you. People, you'll always have demands. So I, I know that's there. I, so I really try to turn a lot of focus on making sure I do spend the time with my family, with my wife and my kids, because that other stuff will always pull me away, right? There's no doubt that that magnetism is always there. It's it's always making sure you 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 find that balance. I do believe in that idea that no one no one goes to goes to see their maker real, thinking they'd spent more time at work, right? I, I, yeah. and so, because um, that, that's, that's actually really easy to do. Yeah. I think. It's so um, it just takes just work, right, and, and understanding. And, um, and sometimes you can't be there, and that's just the way it is, but you have to, you have to spend the focus if you want to have that part of your life. Do you carve off specific time? Like, I never go into work before X, or right. how, like, what are some of the tactics? Well, right now, you know, as I mentioned, we have four-year-old twins, so... Um, wow. Yeah, yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so if, um, yeah, if, if, if I'm not home to help at least a couple nights, so we come in deep trouble anyway, so I gotta, you know, I, no, I, I try to... I. I take them to school a couple mornings a week um, when I'm when I'm in town, and I um, you know, again try and get home early enough to help with dinner and get them in bed and stuff like that. I can enjoy it; it's great. You know, you get a and um, you get a lot of you know. I mean, it's funny. I always <laughs> I, I have you know now that I'm I'm, I'm not a, a young guy to be having four year old twins, so I I'm, I have to keep my energy level high for just a survival thing. So. The kids keep you that way. How high? How important is energy? I find that to be critical, and I'm, it's a common theme. You just said it. What about professionally or just in life? It is. It is energy and excitement. I mean, it's 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 hard to maintain it all the time. You know, there's sometimes you're just like, oh, <laughs> I, you know, it's yeah. a struggle. They just you know get. It. But but it is important to have energy, enthusiasm for what you do. Um, that's one thing I was going to say. Back to the sort of advice to give people. One thing that. Um, I try to make people understand because a lot of people want to have their own business, start their own thing, like you've done and others. And, and there's an important thing to realize that you're going to do a hell lot of stuff that you don't like to do or aren't good at. There, that doesn't involve design. So true. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> oh, so you got to have the stamina and energy and commitment to do that, right? Because uh, you know I probably spend half of my time, you know, sort of organizing new things to do for the other, you know. 57 people I have to worry about, right? Yeah. So those are just things you have to do and you have to gear up for that and, be, and like it and be excited about it. Because if you don't, you, you won't be successful. So I always say, you know, being in business for yourself, just because you're good at design doesn't mean you're gonna be successful in business for yourself. You gotta be willing to do all that other stuff that makes the company run um, in order to do that. And to do that, you gotta have, you gotta be excited because if you don't have it, that energy, you'll, you won't be successful. Stamina is just so underrated. I feel like it's just <laughs> yeah. an amazing characteristic. And it ebbs and flows. You know, there's some days, I mean, Sarah's sitting over there, she can tell you, some days I come into work like, oh, God, 
Do I have to do that, you know? <laughs> yes, you have to. The four-year-olds kept me up. Four-year-old twins. Uh, well, you look great for having four-year-old twins. Robert Bruner, I want to say thank you so much for oh, being on the you. show. It's inspirational as hell. And good luck. Keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate you. It's my pleasure. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Appreciate it, Robert. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say, A, a huge thank you. B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet. On Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there, as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this. Also, uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platforms. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.